thank you, choir and orchestra, and uh, greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. Uh, you've demonstrated true Canadian spirit in being here with us this morning in spite of the cold. I'm not sure about our online viewers, though. We still welcome you. You know, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew through a sermon series called Revealing Jesus. Uh, today, I'll be wrapping up this uh, first section in Matthew, and we will then start a mini-series on the temptations of Jesus. As you read uh, the opening chapters of Matthew, you will see that Matthew, the Gospel writer, is offering us wearing portraits of Jesus. As we preach through Matthew chapters 1 and 2, they fit in really well with the Christmas season as we looked at Jesus through the lens of the Christmas story. Well, the last time I spoke, we talked about uh, little Jesus and his family having to flee overnight to Egypt because Herod was after their life. But after the death of Herod, uh, Jesus' family settled once again back in Israel in the small town of Nazareth. As we come to Matthew chapter 3, we fast forward 30 years. That's three decades, equal to a generation. And Jesus is no longer a baby. Now, we don't have information in the Gospels about the childhood, teenage, and young adult years of Jesus' life. Although the pseudo-gospels seem to abound with the fanciful stories of Jesus' childhood, the four inspired gospels that are part of the Bible remain silent. Only the gospel of Luke gives us a small glimpse at an incident when Jesus at the age of 12 visits the temple in Jerusalem with his parents. And there he has a deep spiritual conversation with religious leaders that amazes them. So we come to Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is now a grown-up adult, all set to leave the stage of obscurity and start a worldwide ministry. This is a significant chapter that affirms the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. All of history pointed to this moment in time for the revelation of Jesus as God's one and only Son. If you read all the four Gospels, they begin the story of Jesus' ministry by introducing to us a fascinating character, John the Baptist. John testifies his job was merely to point people to the real baptizer, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we, today we're going to talk about an aspect of the ministry of Jesus that is crucial for the spiritual life of the church. The church is the active presence of Jesus in the world today. Even though Jesus is not physically here with us, he's very much alive and active through his followers. How is that possible? It's possible because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit the gift of the Spirit that Jesus so freely gives to all of his followers. I'm going to ask us to stand if you're physically able as we honor the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, 
John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of uh, camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Lord, we are open to the ministry of your Holy Spirit this morning, and we pray that nothing will hinder your spirit from doing what you want to do in our midst. We pray that our hearts will be open and ready, that you will give us a deep hunger and longing, that you would fill us today with your spirit. You will give us greater understanding of uh, this experience of being filled in your spirit. So we give this time, Lord, into your hands. Uh, make this a profound time of experience of worship for every one of us here. We ask all this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In the 1990s, a new term became popular in the church world. It's the word seeker-sensitive. Gave rise to the whole seeker-sensitive movement in churches. The intention was good to reach out to those who don't follow Jesus. Churches decided to become relevant and offer worship services that those who were far from the church can identify with. The goal was to woo people into the doors of the church who normally don't go to church. So great music, sermons with practical, on practical self-help topics, and non-offensive gospel presentations, all of these constituted the worship experience. A lot of thought went into making the worship service relevant and engaging, with heavy emphasis on marketing, advertising, packaging. Uh, this was a business model of the church to make the church look attractive to the world. Now, if there was one guy in history who broke every single rule of the seeker-sensitive church growth movement, it was John the Baptist. 
Can you visualize a preacher like this? I call him the ultimate organic guy. His diet consists of some strange, unusual food. He doesn't wear skinny jeans or designer suits, but some kind of a, a costume made out of camel's hair with sticky honey. And when he opens his mouth, he would make Donald Trump look like a diplomat in comparison. <laughs> and if you repeat what John the Baptist said in a seeker-sensitive church, half of the people will get a heart attack. Well, jokes about John the Baptist was an incredible character. The New Testament places a high estimate on John the Baptist and his ministry. He was the first true prophet to be commissioned after a period of silence that lasted for 400 years. He's a key transitional figure between the old and the new covenant. John comes as an Old Testament prophetic figure, but unlike the Old Testament prophets, he didn't say the Messiah is going to come, but his message was the Messiah is here. Jesus paid the ultimate compliment to John when he said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So in the words of Jesus, one of the greatest people to have ever lived, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, was John the Baptist. And no wonder he was so popular. A people came in flocks to be baptized by John as a sign of their repentance. He had a tough message, but people responded favorably. Soon John was leading a major revival movement and many were getting baptized and becoming his followers. Even Jesus is baptized by John. And that would have made the first century audience wonder, is John greater than Jesus? Is he the Messiah we are looking forward to? Now, if there was one person who was so sure of his identity and purpose in life, it was John the Baptist. To remove any such speculations, he puts himself in place and exalts Jesus. For John clearly knew his role as the forerunner. His main job was to prepare the way for the one who is going to come, to reveal to everyone that the long-awaited period of waiting is now coming to its glorious fulfillment. John wasn't supposed to receive all the attention, but his job was to serve as a sign, as a pointer to where the attention truly belongs. A text in Matthew tells us that John's ministry was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The text that we read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3 says, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John prepared the way for the Messiah like a herald would prepare the way for the arrival of a king into a city by blowing a trumpet. So the coming one was infinitely worthy, but the forerunner was merely a voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord to come. Here's yet another proof in Scripture of the divinity of Jesus. 
But who is John preparing room for? The Lord. And that shows Jesus is Lord, the true king, the one and only. The God of Isaiah was coming to earth in human form, and John's job was to clear the way for his grand entrance. John the Baptist further clarifies in our text in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. When John saw himself in comparison to Jesus, he concludes that he is not even worthy to be Jesus' slave. He's fully subordinate to the Messiah. In the first century Jewish world, only non-Hebrew Slaves were given the task of carrying their master's sandals. So even the disciples of a rabbi, even though they did all kinds of chores for the rabbi, did not carry the rabbi's sandals. That was a task reserved for the lowliest person in the social hierarchy. And if John's audience thought that he was impressive, John is declaring openly I am not worthy of performing even the lowliest task for the Messiah. And if you press further and ask John, John, tell me in what sense is Jesus so superior? John would say, you call me the baptizer, but my baptism is only of water. It is an outward sign. I simply dunk people in the Jordan River. But the one coming after me does a far deeper work on the inside. This is not just an outward ritual. This is not a mere ceremony. He baptizes us in the Holy Spirit and fire. Clearly, Jesus is superior. For Jesus is the true baptizer. And the element that he uses in this baptism is not water, but it's the Holy Spirit. Now, there are three very important questions that I want to address in this sermon around this topic of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? When do we receive this baptism? And what is the outcome of this experience? Let's deal with it one by one. Here's the first question. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The word baptism is a metaphor or a word picture. It signifies being drenched, immersed, soaked. When a person is immersed in water, they come out wet, soaking wet. Jesus offers a similar baptism He plunges us in his spirit, in the very life of the triune God. Just as John took repentant sinners and baptized them and immersed them in water, in the same way Jesus takes repentant sinners and immerses them in his spirit. They are soaked, filled, inundated, and drenched by Jesus' spirit. All along, this has been the anticipation of the Old Testament. Our relationship with God 
had been severed because of our sins. We were cut off from the presence of God, unable to have communion with Him. But through the coming of Christ, that relationship is restored, and the indwelling of the Spirit of God is now made possible. The Spirit of Jesus now dwells within us as the ultimate confirmation that we now have access to God. If you look at the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was already active, but the Spirit of God did not inhabit all people. He came upon select individuals, men and women, empowering them for specific tasks. But now through the coming of Jesus, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is now open to all believers. So He dwells in all believers. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit of God, you are not saved yet. You have not come into a saving relationship. You're still in your sins, cut off from God's presence. So as Christians, we all share in the blessing of the Spirit, fulfilling prophecies like Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The Lord, through Ezekiel, is prophesying here about the, the new covenant. And do we realize how spectacular this is? This is the mark of the new covenant. The Spirit of God lives within us. The glory of God that cannot be contained by the most magnificent temples is now poured into our physical bodies through the coming of the Holy Spirit. So when we come to Jesus in repentance, Jesus doesn't just take away our sins. He also baptizes us in His Spirit. The gospel is not about just being saved from the negative effects of sin, but it is also receiving something, a gift, the best gift of all, the gift of God's presence through the Holy Spirit. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It is a metaphor that explains the reality of the Spirit alive and active in our life. That brings us to the next question. When are we baptized in the Spirit? So we come to the controversial part that has divided faithful Christians over the ages. Now, when you ask the question, when do you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there are at least two broad views. One Christian group says, we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit at conversion. It is not a conscious experience, but it is an invisible experience whereby the Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. That's what initiates us into the Christian life. The proponents of this view base it primarily on one verse, 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where the Apostle Paul writes, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So this verse, as you can see, is uh, referring to our conversion. At that moment, a baptism takes place whereby we are now indwelt by the Spirit and we become part of the body of Christ. So that's the view held by the first group. Now, the second group says the baptism of the Spirit is a post-salvation experience. And they base it primarily on the writings of Luke. For what do we read in the book of Acts? we see that the disciples of Jesus were already believers. They had three years of comprehensive training and personal discipleship. They received an appearance from the resurrected Jesus. They were given the great commission to make disciples of the nations. What more do we need? Are they not all set to get it started? Do they not have everything that they need? But Jesus deliberately says, wait, wait, not yet. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, On one occasion, while he, Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The same words from our text in Matthew chapter 3, the words of John the Baptist, that Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And what do we see in Acts chapter 2? On the day of Pentecost, the promise of Jesus was being realized. The gift of the Spirit was poured out on the church. So advocates of the second view argue what we see in Acts is a paradigm for all believers. We are saved first, and then we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit sometime following our conversion experience. So we have two groups here. The question is, who is right? Do you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit at conversion, or is this a post-conversion experience? Our disagreements all are in the semantics. You know, my conclusion after studying this at length is both views are correct, and both have a wrong assumption. Hear me here. The assumption we have is the baptism of the Spirit happens only once. For the first group, it happens at conversion. And for the second group, it is still a single experience that is post-conversion. Both are assuming that the baptism of the Spirit is a singular event. But the way I read the Scripture, I see that the Scripture seems to be more fluid in the way it uses the term baptism of the Spirit. Now, let me read to you a parallel passage of our text in Matthew found in John's Gospel, where John the Baptist speaks again about 
Jesus, the baptizer, hear these words in John chapter 1, verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The words here refer to Jesus baptizing is in the present tense. Uh, Daryl Johnson, who has taught at uh, Regent College in Vancouver, uh, points out in New Testament Greek, the present tense emphasizes continuous action. So John the Baptist is saying of Jesus the baptizer that this is the one who baptizes and keeps on baptizing. John is saying something about the character and the nature of Jesus. The nature of Jesus is to baptize and keep on baptizing, to fill and to keep on filling, to soak and to keep on soaking, to flood and to keep on flooding, to infuse and to keep on infusing. It happens not only once or twice, but over and over so that we receive the life of the triune God and we reflect and radiate His glory. Baptism is just a metaphor, a word picture. It is not a technical term that refers to just one part of the Christian life. It's all-encompassing. The way I look at the baptism of the Spirit, it can be used synonymously with the filling of the Spirit, empowerment of the Spirit, anointing of the Spirit, pouring of the Spirit. It's just various ways of describing the same reality. It denotes the saving, sanctifying, and empowering dimensions of the Holy Spirit. It begins at conversion, but it doesn't stop there. Christian scholar Craig Keener helps us to understand this clearly when he says, baptism of the Spirit refers to the entirety of the Spirit's work in our lives. He goes on, conversion gives us the access to the whole package of the Spirit's work, but neither conversion nor a single experience after conversion frees us from the need to seek God's empowerment in practice. Do you get that? We have full access to the Holy Spirit at conversion, but we don't appropriate all of the ministries of the Holy Spirit at conversion. So what we need is not a single experience, but an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit who is a person. Another prominent Christian scholar, D.A. Carson, puts it this way. Although I find no support for a second blessing theology, I do find support for a second, third, fourth, or fifth blessing theology. And that is because the Bible summons all of us to a spirit-empowered life. And you see that over and over in the book of Acts. Take, for example, the apostle Peter. He's filled with the Holy Spirit three times within the space of Acts chapter 2 to 4. And I tell you, that has been my own personal experience as well. At age 17, when I became a follower of Jesus Christ, 
I believe I received the gift of the Holy Spirit when I became part of the family of God. The Holy Spirit was at work even before I became a Christian, convicting my heart, opening my eyes to the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is. But that was only the beginning. For within a few weeks, I had a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. And this time, it was a conscious experience. When I was alone in my room, worshiping God, I was filled at that moment with God's Spirit. And it felt like wave after wave crashing over me. It is impossible to describe or put this experience in words. And this incredible experience was accompanied by an outpouring of joy, unspeakable and full of glory. And that vivid experience resulted in boldness to stand up for the gospel. I will never, ever forget that moment for the rest of my life. But praise God, hear me here, praise God that I don't live off that experience that happened years ago. Because the Spirit of God has filled me countless times ever since. Sometimes it was conscious. Many times I wasn't conscious. But I have been filled over and over again. So to answer the question, when do we receive the baptism of the Spirit? We receive it at conversion. But it's also meant to be a recurrent, ongoing experience for all believers. Praise God, yeah. Here's the third question. What is the effect of this experience? The baptism of the Spirit implies fullness, being saturated by the Spirit. Our lives are yielded to and directed by the person of the Holy Spirit. To me... That's more important than wasting our time on semantics, arguing over terminologies, little things that really don't matter. We need to move past that and ask the most important question. What is the intent of Jesus in baptizing us in his spirit? Some people teach that the effect of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. And they see tongues as the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. Now, tongues may be one of the signs of the Spirit. It's definitely a valid gift of the Spirit. And some Christians speak in tongues. But it is not a normative experience for all Christians. So it is a mistake to assume that tongues is the only evidence of being filled with the Spirit. You will not find that in the Bible. So the question then is, what is the sure evidence that we have been baptized by the Spirit? And this is where I want to highlight two major areas where we see the influence of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God is alive in your life, these are the two areas where it will be demonstrated. First of all, an endowment of power. What did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? He gives us the main reason why we are filled by the Spirit. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. One of the primary reasons the Holy Spirit was given to us is to empower us so we can be witnesses of the Lord Jesus. And I kid you not, when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes with power. A power that is not your own. It is totally supernatural. And if you lack power in your Christian life, power to pray, power to fight temptations, power to passionately share the gospel, power to live a vibrant Christian life, then you need to pray for the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because we were not meant to live the Christian life in defeat. You know, I'm tired of seeing people who are Christians who just capitulate to temptations and live like the rest of the world. That kind of a weak, anemic Christianity is a result of forgetting the power source that God has given to us. So if you feel that you're weak, ask the Spirit of God to awaken your heart, defeat the sinful nature inside of you, and live a Christ-exalting life. Because when you're yielded to the Holy Spirit, your life will have maximum impact for God's kingdom. We engage in his mission. We become witnesses of Jesus. Like the apostles, we can say, I can't help but testify of the things that I have seen and heard. A.W. Tozer was one of the great prophetic figures of the last century. And he made this profound statement. Listen to me carefully. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would even know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Oh, today, how we need the power of God's Spirit as a church. The challenges of ministry are too overwhelming, daunting for us to carry it all in our own strength. See, it is not our cleverness, our strategies and initiatives, our ability to put on programs that's going to bring people to Christ. It is our extent of dependence on the Holy Spirit that's going to impact our city and turn our city upside down for Jesus. Now, let me say something here that may be relevant to some of you. A reason why some of us are afraid to ask for the infilling of the Spirit is because we are afraid of emotions. You may be saying to yourself, I don't want to get too emotional. And I've seen people who claim to be Spirit-filled, and I want nothing to do with those kind of emotional reactions. But let me challenge you. Every relationship of love 
involves emotions. How can you possibly express love without emotions? See, we are emotional beings. It's part of who we are. We are not just cerebral creatures. And I'm not advocating for some kind of an emotional, sentimental religion in the church. No, what I'm saying is some of us are so afraid of emotions that we settle for a dry orthodoxy and miss out on the adventures that God has for us in our Christian life. We hide behind pious theological statements and have no experience of God's power in our life. Let me give you a practical illustration that will help clarify what I'm saying here. Let's say you are a steak lover and you got the best pieces of meat in your freezer. T-bone, sirloin, ribeye, name it, you have it all. Now, if that steak just remains in your freezer and you never, ever cook it, it's going to do you no good. Steaks are not meant to be kept in a dark freezer in the basement. They're meant to be consumed. So you take that steak out of the freezer, let it sizzle on the barbecue, and you put on the spices and the barbecue sauce, and voila, the entire neighborhood now knows that you are having steak for dinner tonight. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. And some say, I received the Holy Spirit. It was part of the package when I came to faith in Christ. I don't need any further experience. Oh, yes, you have full access to the Holy Spirit at conversion, But how are you living this out today? Is your life marked by the power of God's Spirit? If not, you left that steak too long in the freezer. And it's time to bring it out and let it sizzle on the barbecue so everybody around you takes notice of it. So that is the first primary effect of encountering the Holy Spirit in our life, a demonstration of power. Now, there's a second important reason we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, to help us live a life of holiness. Not only do we need more of the Spirit, the Spirit needs more of us. And if you read Galatians chapter 5, It speaks of the Spirit-led life. And the proof of that is the fruit of the Spirit. The character of Jesus demonstrated in us through the work of the Spirit. And that is equally important. The Holy Spirit forms in us the character of Christ. Because He is the Spirit of Jesus... When he abides in us, we will inevitably become more like Jesus. So you cannot separate the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. It is when the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit go hand in hand, our ministries will have maximum impact. So to answer the question, what are the effects of being baptized by the Spirit? It results in power, and the life of holiness. If these two things are not 
prominent in your life, then you need to go deeper in your experience of the Spirit. There are many other blessings that comes with it as well, but I don't have the time to talk about all of that today. When you read the text in uh, Matthew chapter 3, it makes reference to a baptism with spirit and fire. So what is this baptism of fire? That will be the last question I'll address today. On a weekend like this, the mention of fire offers us a cozy feeling, like turning on the fireplace and just enjoy the warmth. The original Jewish audience of Matthew will not resonate with that. They saw fire as a symbol of God's presence. God's presence was manifested through a burning bush to Moses. The presence of God followed the Israelites like a pillar of fire at night in the wilderness. Fire also communicates God's purifying work. The fire baptism of the Spirit is again a metaphor that speaks of the purging influence of the Spirit in our life. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and helps us to walk in the path of righteousness. So when we receive the Holy Spirit, He sanctifies us, purifies us, and gives us a passion for holiness. There is a deeper life that God has in store for all who are hungry and yearning for that. Lastly, fire is also a metaphor in Scripture for God's judgment. So those who repent receive the blessing of God's Spirit. But the unrepentant, those who are not receptive to Jesus, will be baptized with the fire of God's eternal judgment. The scriptures are abundantly clear that there will be a final judgment and those who reject Christ will suffer eternal punishment. That's very clear in the passage we are working with today. Look at Matthew 3, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. The imagery is of a grain harvester, a farmer who uses a tool to toss the harvested grains in the air. And that way the useless husk will be blown away and the grain will be stored safely in the barn. So the wheat symbolizes people who have repented and believed in Jesus. They have received the gift of God's Holy Spirit. And the shaft symbolizes the unrighteous, the unrepentant, who are bent on going their own way. The shaft will be burnt with unquenchable fire. That just means never-ending fire. That is signifying eternal torment. See, there are only two groups of people at the end of the day. All the people who ever lived here on earth will be under two 
categories. Those who belong to God's kingdom and those who don't. There is no middle ground, absolutely none. Doesn't matter how good you live your life. Those who are part of the kingdom of God are those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Through Jesus' work on the cross, we have been forgiven, given a new life, baptized by the Holy Spirit, and we live in the power of God's Spirit. And if you have not made that decision, today God himself invites you to become part of his family. Let this day be the day of your salvation. For if you are willing to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven of your sins and you will receive the gift of God's Spirit. In a few moments from now, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. To prepare our hearts, I want to read the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The coming of the Holy Spirit in your life is the culmination of your personal salvation experience. It is the evidence today that you are part of God's family. For that moment, we place our faith in Christ. Jesus gives us the gift of His Spirit who confirms our adoption into God's family. Our identity is sealed once and forever that we are sons and daughters of the living God. But it doesn't stop there. All who claim to be God's children are led by the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is the normal Christian life. Let's not settle for anything less. I want to close our time in prayer. It'll be appropriate for us to just stretch our hands in a posture of receptivity and ask God for a fresh infilling of His Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank You that You always honor Your Word. You always honor Your promises. And You have given us the promise that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So we claim that promise right now, and we ask, Lord, that you will grant us a fresh outpouring of your Spirit in this place, an endowment of power from on high to empower us to live our Christian lives. For we cannot do it in our own strength. We are powerless. So we acknowledge our dependence upon you, and we pray that as you fill us afresh, grant us the power to be a witness to the Lord Jesus, that we will not be silent, but we will testify of the things that we have seen and heard, that, Lord, out of us, the gospel message will go forth and touch the lives of others around us. 
We pray that you will give us empowerment as a church to carry on the responsibilities that you have given to us. We need your Holy Spirit. So use this, Lord, as Center Street Church to be a powerful instrument in your hand that our city will never be the same as a result of our presence here. I pray for those who are weak and struggling in their Christian life that you will fill them now with a renewed passion that their heart will come alive and they would not live their lives in defeat, but embrace the victory that you have. So we give ourselves to you. Lead us by your Spirit that we will live honoring lives, lives that will bring glory to the Lord Jesus. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Now, we have prayer partners available who will be happy to pray with you. God bless you.